Let's go. You are listening to Dollars and Sensibility, the podcast that explores the numbers, concepts, and behaviors that shape your financial life. Hosts, business partners, and friends, Bill McBride and Andrew Martz are financial advisors in Hollywood, California, that for a combined 35 years have helped thousands of individuals and businesses better their financial futures. Here, they want to open these discussions to you, the listener, share the many things they have learned, and of course, how to be sensible about your dollars. Hey, welcome back to Dollars and Sensibilities with Andrew Martz and Bill McBride. Bill, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing great, Andrew. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Hey, excited about today's episode because I'm looking forward to clearing up some confusion. Uh, And I think what is going to happen today is people are going to feel okay for not knowing something that for a long time they feel like they should know. Right. So a lot of times you hear people talking about Hey, I'm investing in my, my portfolio. I got stocks and bonds. And they understand this idea and this relationship that between stocks and bonds, it's supposed to help us diversify your portfolio. It's supposed to help balance the risk. And I think for, on an intuitive level, people understand that a stock is an investment in a company. And when you own a stock, you're a part owner of that company. You participate in its success or failures. But oftentimes when I ask the follow-up question to what is a bond, I'm just presented with a deer in headlights stare. Right. And, and also a general definition. People understand generally that bonds are more conservative right. or that, hey, I can expect a little bit lower return. And they certainly are comfortable enough to use the term in like a general sense. Right. Feelings and expectations, but not necessarily... What is it? Yeah. Like, what is a bond? So today we are going to uncover just bond 101. Now, we have a lot of financial professionals who listen to this podcast. So let me just quick disclaimer. This is not everything you need to know about bonds. We're not going to talk about everything. But just for your general investors, a lot of people that we talk to every day, we are here to help promote financial literacy, financial education, just trying to understand a little bit about the bond world. So- First and foremost, I think that it's really important to understand that a bond, the way I usually explain it, is it's just really like a fancy IOU, right? We as investors in bonds, what we're really doing is we're lending our money to somebody or something, to an entity. And it's this idea that we are going to receive our money back. We're going to get a little bit of interest and that's going to happen over a stated period of time. It's a, it's a promissory note to a government, a corporation, or a municipality. And here's the thing. The U.S. bond market is enormous. I mean, compared to the stock market, it pales it in comparison. The total U.S. bond market is nearly $40 trillion, probably even more today. This was back, you know, the data as of 2017. But $40 trillion, now 35% of that is made up of just U.S. government bonds or, or what's known as treasury bonds, which is a, it's just a phenomenal number. I mean, that's, that's $14 trillion. And it's, and it's traded more than the stock market. I was surprised, actually, you know, learn something new every day in this job. I was surprised that the volume of bond trading on a regular basis exceeds that of the stock market. 
It does. Yeah. I mean, it, because it's, it's so big, because there is so much availability in the securities and in the access to this paper. So yeah, it's not surprising that you're just seeing the volume of this. But what, what's interesting is I remember you know, Michael Lewis's book, Liar's Poker. It always talked about this, the idea between stocks and bonds, like bonds just aren't sexy. Right. I was nervous about doing this podcast. It's like, how do you make bonds fun to listen to for 20 minutes? Like you can, it's like, I know when you got, you know, you got today's episode, yeah. you're like, really? Yeah. Well, I, 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 I harken back to when we used to have to go to uh, once a week, there was like some seminar of a, of a fund manager or wholesaler. Um, and I, I fell asleep. There was a bond portfolio manager and no offense again to any of our friends in the business out there. But the bond portfolio manager, it's it's just it's it's kind of boring, right? Because it's very numbers based. There's not a lot of emotion, right? There's not a lot of, like you said, there's not a lot of sexiness to it, right? There's not a new iPad coming out, and you can talk about Apple. There's not a, you know, there, there's no um, consumer story there, really. And if you haven't read Liar's Poker, by the way, and you're listening right now, a phenomenal, phenomenal classic book, classic read. I encourage you to go out and get it, but it, it talks about this dichotomy. Like everybody wanted to be any any young guy or young woman going into finance. They wanted to be an equity person, right? They wanted to sure. they wanted to be on the equity desk. They wanted to be a stock. Nobody wanted to go to the bond desk. And yeah. th this idea that like bonds are just kind of like it's not as exciting actually isn't true. First, but two, the understanding of how important bonds are. So let's, if we can, for just a couple of minutes, take a step back. Bonds originated literally at the, the inception of this country. And a lot of times when you, you talk about the first bonds and early bonds, the, the idea of war bonds are brought up and war bonds were used to finance war efforts. And I think at least in, in today's day and age, the images of World War One or World War Two and this this effort of America fighting overseas and financing the war efforts. It's true. War bonds were kind of this first example, but not for World War One, for the American Revolution. Right. Dating back to the, the beginning of this country. Right. The, the, this is written into the Constitution of the United States. And America was really sort of its forefounders struggling with this idea of how do we create some sort of financial markets? What is going to be the mode in which we transact? What are we going to use? And we talked about this last week, last Friday, when we were talking about gold. Right. And this era in the founding fathers, it was gold and silver coins that were used as the markers for, for all of these notes. That was what was the denomination. That was what was backing all of this paper that was being created to fund war efforts. Right. And I find it further interesting that what it does is issuing bonds in wartime, like the American Revolution, it also creates a mental buy-in for the country. You know, if you're in your, uh, your, your townhouse in, in Philadelphia in 1776 and you want to get involved and you want to back America in the, in the war against England— Right. You you buy bonds so right. you can not only profit from it, but also have a feeling of involvement. One hundred and thirty years later, if you wanted to join in the war effort to fight the Third Reich without having to fly across the ocean, you could support and do your part right. by buying into bonds. And by the way, receive interest and 
receive safety of your money because you're it's with the government. So this was re- this is really the beginning inceptions of a bond. So let's let's for a second let's talk about let's talk about your favorite bonds. Mine, your favorite bonds. Hey, you know, it all depends on the client. You know, for me, I have very little bonds. Right, I'm forty-seven years old, so I got a long time horizon. And bonds as a safe investment, I just don't see where they belong in my portfolio. I like corporates right now. To, to me, again, it's relative. Before we get there, I thought you were going to tell me your favorite James Bond story. Oh man, I, I missed you, the joke. I thought I you were going to go line. with gold bond, medicated power for your feet. Wait, wait, hold on. No, All right, let me go over. It. No, you're fine. Let me go. We got you're James Bond. That's my favorite bond, right? <laughs> 007. 007, the bond between a mother and a child. <laughs> we can't, you know, we can't forgo that one. Gold bond, medicated powder, and of course, Gary U.S. Bonds, one of the greatest artists of our time. Let's break down really simply the components of a bond. So I, I'm an investor in bonds and I'm, I'm investing my money into an entity. We're going to talk about the types of bonds here in a minute, but for now, we're investing into something that when we give our money to that entity, to that investment, they're going to hold our principal. for a stated period of time. Could be two years, could be five years, could be 10 years. While they hold our money, they're going to pay us interest stated at the beginning of that transaction. So at inception of all of this, at this investment, we know as investors exactly how much money we're going to make. We know exactly when we're, we're going to get our money back to us. And this is why there has been this level of certainty behind bonds. Everything is written into the note itself. And when we say the note, this is the, the terms and the agreement of this transaction. Right. The U.S. government says, hey, we need war bonds. So Mr. Patriotic Citizen says, here's you know, here's $1,000, go to the war effort. The government takes that, they build planes, they build warships, they finance their troops. And what they receive back is interest payments two times a year. And at the end of that transaction, five years or 10 years later, they're now receiving that, that original $1,000 back. But along the way, they've collected interest. So their total return on that really is whatever interest they've collected for that period of time. Right. So it's a, you know exactly what you're going to make and you know how long you're going to make that return for. Right. So now we're, we're just starting to talk about bonds on the primary market. Right. Right. So, we're just we're just talking about basic structure of bonds. What comprises them? Yes, there are a lot of other things. We're gonna get there in a second, but just the structure, the terms of it is there is a stated interest rate, there's a stated maturity, and there is a an initial investment that is made. So you're gonna make your principal investment, you're gonna receive that money back, you get your interest while that bond is being held. So if that's the structure, second question is then well. What am I investing in? Another way to say that is who issues bonds? So the number one largest issuer of bonds in the world today is who, Bill? The U.S. Treasury. The U.S. federal government. The number one largest issuer of bonds anywhere. This is because the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. So what that means is I'm investing in the U.S. federal government and they're going to do things and they're going to finance for things like Social Security or Medicare or other federal government funded programs. And there's lots and lots and lots on the you know, federal budget every year. Sure. But that's what they're using the money for. They then collect things like tax revenue and other forms of income that they receive. And they're paying out interest obligations on those bonds every single 
year. Now, U.S. bonds and, and U.S. federal government bonds come in a couple of different shapes and sizes. Maybe we should talk about that for a second. Notes, bills, notes, and bonds, bonds. right? So we have uh, treasury bills, um, what's that, one year or less, right? Notes, 10 years, and then treasury bonds are 30-year maturities, uh, a lot of people like to do what's called a, a laddered portfolio with treasuries, meaning that, hey, I've got a 30-year time horizon, but I don't, you know, I don't want to put all my eggs in one basket of buying just one 30-year treasury bond. So they'll buy treasury bills, treasury notes with different, different maturities and different interest rates so that there's always some money coming in. There's always an interest payment coming in from various treasuries with different maturities. So another really big issuer is not on the federal level, but the individual states do this too. So if you live in the U.S. and you live in a state, we're, we're in California right now, right? We're in Los Angeles. California is one of the largest issuers of bonds in the, con in the country, at least on the municipal side. And no coincidence, the highest uh, state tax rate, income tax rate. Fifth largest economy in the world. Right. I mean, this is, it's a big state. So they issue state-level bonds. These are referred to as municipal bonds. They're issued by the local municipalities. Things like education, water and power, general obligation and revenue bonds to help fund fixing your streets and your local government-funded programs. School districts. Now, now, municipal bonds are sometimes called munis, muni bonds for short, have a unique feature to them that make them attractive. And that is that they are exempt. The interest that they receive is exempt in majority of times, not every time, but the majority of times you're going to receive exemption from the tax you have to pay on the interest you receive. Right. So as a citizen of that particular state where you purchase the bond and reward for you investing in your community, federal and state taxes are waived. So federal taxes are always waived. State taxes if you reside in that state. Right. So if you live in California, but you buy New York state bonds, you're exempt on the federal level, but you pay on the state level. Right. Kind of a unique feature because when you're talking about this, one of the biggest detractors from total return in the portfolio that people don't think about, go back and, and listen to Tackling Taxes, an episode we've had dedicated to just talking about how to manage taxes in your portfolio. But one of the biggest detractors is paying tax. So finding an investment that you receive tax-free income from, very, very powerful. And it's why a lot of people use it for retirement income or at least a supplement too. One of my favorite quotes was uh, Rockefeller. They said, how did you get so rich? And he said, I never paid money. I never paid taxes, pardon me, on money that I wasn't using. And what he was referring to is municipal bonds. It's great. Another type of bond or another issuer of bond is going to be corporations. Now, this is a really cool one because... I think this clearly separates and compares and contrasts stocks versus bonds. So I can buy a bond in Apple computer. Here's the difference. The difference between buying a bond in Apple computer and buying a stock in Apple computer. When I own the stock, I participate in its success or failures. I can be up or down on any given day or any given week. When I buy a bond from Apple computer, what I'm buying is the right to receive an interest payment on a debt obligation. So Apple is borrowing money from me and they're paying me interest on that for five years or 10 years. Again, that's going to be stated in the initial terms and they can vary. But the interest you receive from a corporation is going to be predicated on how 
high quality of a business it is that you're investing into. Right. So, so all bonds, uh, even on the municipal level or, or well, treasuries don't have ratings, right? But sure they do. Well, they, they have a rating, but it was downgraded a couple of years ago. 2013. Uh, right. But, but they have, the but they have part, a rating. For, yeah, for the most part, they're what they call AAA, right? So bonds- Well, we're AA now. But right, bonds in general have ratings, right? So a corporate bond can be rated AAA, AA, A. Those are the top ratings, triple B, even what we call investment grade. It would be the equivalent of having like a high FICO score. Right. 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 It, it is saying, hey, right. I'm a good borrower. Yeah. I'm, I'm good for the money. I'm good for it. You know what I'm saying? And- in the, the lower grades are what we used to refer to more commonly as junk bonds, right? And now we call them, you know, non-investment grade. But or high, high yield is another term that we hear a lot today. High yield doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that they're awful or incredibly risky. It's just that these rating agencies look at the ability of the company to pay back the bondholder and say, hey, this one... This is a little bit better than the, the one before. But, you know, going back to the beginning, we were talking about bonds being unsexy. I think that's, that's developed in the 90s. And I, I go back to the, uh, the cinematic classic Wedding Singer. Do you remember he was a junk bond trader, Mr. Gulia and his DeLorean, right? Sandler. And, right. And in the 80s, bonds were, bonds were sexy. And the reason why is because there were junk bonds, right? And he was a junk bond trader. And interest rates were very high then. So, you know, we'll, we'll get into the risk and reward part of that, I guess, in a second. It wasn't that there was junk bonds in the 80s and not junk bonds now. That was right. just the beginning of the junk bond craze. market. Right. So that, it was a it, craze, though, because the Michael Milliken created this market, right? That right. was financial instruments had never been packaged like that before. So high risk companies weren't able to get loans from the bank or, you know, money from from Wall Street. And, you know, some really smart financial guys came in and said, well, let's package a bunch of this stuff together and sell it to investors. And what investors will get for this is just a much higher interest rate than they're getting on their treasuries or they're getting from these really safe blue chip stock bonds and blue chip company bonds. So they created this junk box market and the problem was people didn't understand it. Right. It was well, this new sexy thing. You see these high coupon rates and the market was just going crazy. So it, it became very popular and then the market kind of got figured out and there was, you know, better regulations. There was better ratings on, on the bonds. So it was a little bit more transparent. So the, the market still exists today. So, well, let's, let's segue before we get into the packaging of them, right? Let's segue to number four, which is the mortgage-backed bonds, right? So mortgage-backed bonds, a thousand different people put their money into different mortgages. And back in the day, they started to package those mortgages together and sell them as independent financial products, right? So securities you could buy. So in, instead of a, a bank relying on their depositors to be able to repay these mortgage back uh, to repay the mortgages, like the money from people's checking accounts to pay to to back the mortgages, they sold these mortgage backed securities. Right. I often use a mortgage as an example of how a bond works because it's very easy to understand. Right. right. So most people listening right now have either bought a home or someday aspire to buy a home. And when you walk into the bank to buy a home. The banker is going to say, okay, great, Mr. Jones, you want to, you want to buy a million dollar home. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to need you to give me two years tax returns. 
you're going to have to give me two months of your bank statements. I'm going to run your, your credit score and please provide me a pay stub. And what they're doing is they are assessing your ability to repay the money they're about to lend you to buy your house. Now your house becomes the, what's called the collateral. That's what's going to backstop the bank to, to know that if something, if you lose your job, if you know, something goes wrong financially, they are still sitting on a house that they can own and seize. Well, in a bond investment, really the roles just become reversed. Instead of you going to the bank asking to borrow money, you're now going to the bank saying, hey, I have some money to invest. I want to quote unquote, lend it out to, to somebody. And I have two years or five years to do that. So let's find somebody who can pay me a rate of return that I'm comfortable with. And for a period of time that is that I have to, to put my money away. Now imagine you walked into a, to a bank with your twin sibling, you know, your twin brother, your twin sister, and you both apply for homes that are the same price, uh, you know, in the same neighborhood, but you have a higher credit score and you make more money and you have more money in the bank than your twin sibling. You'll both get approved for a mortgage, but your sibling will have to pay a higher interest rate. Right. Why? Because they're less credit quality. They're, they present a higher risk. risk. So the same thing we're talking about in junk bonds is they're just companies that have a lower ability to be able to repay. It doesn't mean that they won't pay. just means that right now, they have a lower ability or they, they're a little bit more risk. Right. And, and foreign markets are, are notorious for, for that credit risk, right? So you've got you know, Venezuela. Um, I think Ireland was even on that list at one point where you know, a lot of people go, well, this is a country that's been around for a while. They're paying 14% interest. Well, not all countries have the same risk requirements of, for backing their bonds, right? They can just issue them. And so they're they're greater they're at a greater risk for default. Correct. So that's that's the word that's the dirty word in the bond market default. Right. Which nobody wants to hear. I, I found that it is rather rare. Right. I, once in a blue moon, you'll see a corporation or a country default on bonds. Um, we saw Greece a few years ago. Um, uh, you know, people get into trouble, and then uh, Orange County municipal bonds. I, I remember that. Orange County defaulted on their municipal bonds, or that they said they were going to, but some bonds like those carry insurance, right? So municipal bond insurance agencies will insure these bonds. And in the case of Orange County, they devalued the bonds. And we're getting a little bit more complex here, but if you can imagine in the uh, in the example, the bonds were the, the mortgage was devalued, the house was devalued, but the fact was it was insured for $1,000 a piece, right? So people bought those bonds on the secondary market for 30 cents on the dollar. So for $300, you could get a $1,000 bond. Now you had to wait for it to mature 10 years. So you just lost a whole bunch of people. So here's, here's, here's what we need to do. How do you make money in bonds? Everything that we've been talking to up until this point you alluded to it, is when you buy bonds in what's called the primary market. I'm buying a bond directly from the person or entity that is issuing the bond. Now, the, the vast majority of times, that is not how you and I and, and everybody else listening are buying bonds. They are buying bonds in what's called the secondary market. They're buying bonds from other investors. So when I buy a bond from the U.S. federal government, or when I buy a bond directly from the state of California, directly from Apple, I'm buying it at its par value. Usually $1,000 is a par value. 
But when I buy a bond on the secondary market, the value of that bond might be slightly higher or slightly lower depending on some different variables. So let's talk about what those variables are and how bonds can get priced and why my bonds can actually, people don't know this, bonds actually change in value. Sure. Not always the same value. It, they change in value daily, just like a stock, right. albeit less. So, so why is that? So we, we call that on the secondary market, we call it either buying bonds at a premium or at a discount, right? So as you mentioned, par value is the value that they come out at. And if you pay more for a bond, you pay a premium. If you pay less for the bond, you're buying it at a discount. So what would cause that? Interest rates primarily, right? So interest rates, if we are in, um, for example, if Andrew, you've got a bond that pays 5% interest, okay? And interest rates have gone up in general, so that um, let's say there's six percent now. Right. It's a year later. I bought a bond at five percent. It's a year later. Interest rates are at six percent. Right. Interest rates are at six percent. So the guy next door to you has one at six percent. Both of you say, "Hey, Bill, buy my bond." Well, I'm going to go with the guy that pays six percent rather than yours. However, Andrew, you may say to me, "Well, Bill, I'll sell you my bond for nine hundred and ninety-five dollars." You do the math and you go, which one makes more sense? Which am I going to have more profit on? So what that means is you just bought the bond for $995. So you're buying it at a discount, right? You're getting 5% interest. But when that bond matures, it matures at $1,000. Not only are you making the interest, the 5%, but you're also realizing the difference between the discounted price and what you are redeeming it at. Right. Assuming you hold it until it matures. Right. Which, which may or may not happen. Right. And conversely, you may say uh, the person with the 6% bond or might say, hey, I'm going to sell you mine for $1,010 bill. Right. And that might be the better deal. So you do that. And then if you let it mature, really, that's that's a capital loss. Right. So a lot of times, if you're listening right now, you, you may have heard that there is a, a relationship between that exists between interest rates and bond prices. And that relationship is inverse, which just means that they move in opposite directions. Generally speaking, as interest rates rise, bond prices will fall. Conversely, as interest rates fall, bond prices should rise. Now you notice I'm not speaking in absolute terms because it doesn't always work out that way. And and really, Andrew, it historically has up until about seven, eight years ago. Right. Right. Everything changed. Everything changed 12 years ago uh, with, the, with the financial crisis. But what I found is that interest rates went to all-time lows. Now, if you're thinking about buying bonds for yourself or a client, you go, well, if interest rates are at all-time lows and the Federal Reserve rate, which which is the benchmark for most interest rates and in mortgages or bonds or whatever, the Federal Reserve rate was between zero and 0.25, meaning right. that it couldn't go any lower. If rates can't go any lower, that means they have to go higher, given that it is a fact of the, the laws of physics that there's an inverse relationship then if rates go up, then bond values are going to go down. So really, when you're looking at in the past, again, seven years is really when rates started hitting that bottom and have relatively stayed there, right? You have to look at, 
well, how much money can I really make? Cause I'm really only making it from, from the interest. Right. Right. And here's the thing. You may only need to make money from the interest. So that relationship may be less important to you. So here's the real question you're listening today. Maybe you're a bond investor. Maybe you own bonds in your portfolio. The question is, well, how do I get access to them? How should I be buying bonds or what questions should I be asking my financial advisor? I think the first thing that I want to hear from people when they want to be safe or conservative and they feel bonds are the way to go and we address that, I want to know, I want to know more about their tax situation, right? Okay. So if someone says to me, hey, Bill, um, let's look at those uh, California municipal bonds. I'm a resident of California. I like the idea of getting 4% federal and state tax free, Okay. 4% federal and state tax-free, if you're in the highest federal and state tax bracket, means that you have what's called a tax-equivalent yield of about 8%. That means that you'd have to find another investment that was taxable at 8% to get the same outcome as you would from a tax-free bond at 4%. Right. So we look at corporate bonds, right? Corporate bonds are, are, are always taxable. So if I'm looking at a corporate bond that's paying 8% and I know my client is in the highest tax bracket, well, at the end of the day, they're going to get 4%, right? Right. So, so a lot of times when I'm talking to people, an easy way to get access to bonds are through bond funds or bond ETFs. And really all this is, it is a, a single investment that invest in many, 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 many types of bonds. Now, it could be all government bonds, could be all municipal bonds, or it could be a portfolio of government and municipal and corporate and everything that we've talked about today. It gives you greater access to this market. You average out all, the interest rate on all those bonds are going to be different. The tax situation is all going to be different. But on average now, this is going to provide you, generally speaking, nice stable income, should reduce your risk overall. And there are a lot of benefits, but there's also a lot of reasons why that might not be the best for somebody, right? Right. But while, while we're on the safety topic too, it, it should be noted that one of the reasons why bonds are considered a safer investment than stocks is because they are first to be paid in the event of the insolvency of the corporation or the municipality. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so again, back to, so then how do we get, and that's an important point, but how do we get access to them? We're either buying the individual bonds, right? So I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy 10 or 20 of, of my own bonds and put them into a portfolio, which if I'm just an individual investor can be very, very confusing. Sure. So what do you do? I, the I, other, I do both for my, for my clients. I buy some and for different reasons, right? Individual bonds and some in funds. Yeah. And he, here's really the, for me as a professional, what the trigger point is, it's how much capital you're investing into fixed income or into right. bonds in general. Generally speaking, you would want to have more than a half a million dollars to buy individual bonds. And now this starts to become more advantageous from pricing, from uh, a tax perspective, you get a little bit more control, you get a little bit more customization that you can build into those, those portfolios. But if you don't have that much capital, you're not going to have enough resource to build a portfolio that's one, diversified enough, 
Two, you're not going to have enough capital to get access to enough bonds and you're not going to be buying them on enough volume that you're not going to get preferred pricing. Right. And usually for an individual bond, the bare minimum is $10,000, right? And, and most brokerage firms really want to deal with 100000 at a time. And that's just not a one-shot deal. You, you don't want to say to somebody that has $100,000 to their name, let's put all 100000 in this one bond from this one corporation Correct. or this one municipality. And it's important to know that, that the bond market operates on an, on an auction. It's an auction market. So you're putting out bids and you're receiving those back. So you know whether you're buying or selling, if you're dealing in small numbers, 10, 20, 50,000, these are small numbers when you're talking about a $40 trillion marketplace, right? When you're dealing with less money, it's harder to come into this big ocean of bonds and get attractive pricing. That's why funds make a lot of sense. That That is why funds make a lot of sense. But the number one pitfall of funds, which we're, I, I think we're on the precipice of seeing Maybe, maybe not a, a significant downturn, but a notable one is that when you're in a fund, you buy shares of that fund and that fund owns 5,000 different bonds. They could have bought those bonds 20 years ago, yep. right? And if they bought the bonds 20 years ago at, let's say, a, a lower rate than is available tomorrow, that devalues the bond, Correct. Right. So your share price will fluctuate. Correct. Right? Just like the value of a bond will fluctuate if you own the individual bond, but your share price could fluctuate. And it could be from, again, bonds that were in the portfolio long before you ever thought of getting in. You hit the nail on the head. You have less control. So I hope today really was at least the tip of the iceberg as we're exploring bonds. I hope you stayed with us through this whole episode. It's an important piece of your investment education. It's really, really critical that you understand just the mechanics of how this works. So we appreciate you tuning in today. I hope this uh, educational piece on bonds has you shaken and not stirred. <laughs> hey, thanks for tuning in to Dollars and Sensibility. We'll catch you every Friday at noon. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Dollars and Sensibility podcast. Be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you can join us for each and every episode. Follow us on social media at WIS Advisors and be sure to check out our website at wisadvisors.com. Tune in for the next step on the bridge between dollars and the mind of the sensible investor. Thanks for listening. Bill McBride and Andrew Moss are investment advisor representatives and registered representatives with Western International Securities Incorporated. All the opinions expressed by Andrew, Bill and all podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Western International Securities. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Western International Securities may maintain positions discussed in this podcast.